0: In the year 1962, in the African country now known as Tanzania, there was a very bizarre epidemic that began to spread through the country. This wasn't an AIDS epidemic. It wasn't the spreading of the Ebola virus. It wasn't some poisonous, contagious disease. Brother, this epidemic that reached epic proportions that began to spread through the country was actually a laughter bug. There were a few schoolgirls in Tanzania that began to laugh uncontrollably. Well, their laughter was so contagious that it began to spread to neighboring communities. And they actually had to close a few schools down for a period of time to keep other students from catching their laugh bug because their laughter was just so infectious. It took about half a year for this laughter epidemic to subside. It's true, historically. 1962, Tanzania, laughter epidemic. Now, the reason I love that so much is because laughter is a powerful gift from God. Laughter has a way of being contagious. Have you ever noticed when you watch your favorite sitcom? Usually... What's in the background? A laugh track. Because producers understand human psychology. When you hear laughter, it inspires you to laugh along with the audience. In the same way, when we're filled with joy, when we're filled with laughter, man, it starts spreading to other people. I don't know about you, but when I'm around Greg, I'm happy. I, I see his smile. I see his joy. I'm like, I want what he has, man. That is awesome. But laughter, it's a gift from God. Did you know that um, laughter can actually improve your immune system? It's true. Laughter releases neuropeptides in your body that help to fight um, stress and other potentially more serious illnesses. It's a natural stress buster. Laughter can actually help you deal with pain. That's why a lot of times like, people will visit sick kids and bring them funny books. Because laughter can release its own natural painkillers in the body. Check this out. According to one study, researchers found that when we laugh at other people's mistakes, when we use humor to attack other people, we will actually raise our blood pressure. But if instead you use humor to laugh at your own mistakes, you'll lower your blood pressure. So you can actually use humor to lower your blood pressure levels, according to one study. This is one of my favorites. Did you know that if you laugh 100 times? It has the same effect on the body as being on a rowing machine for 10 minutes or a stationary bike for 15 minutes. So if you want really good abs when you leave church today, you have to laugh at all my jokes. (laughs) Serious. Has power. One more thing about laughter that I think is awesome. Researchers have found, according to one study, that children laugh an average of 400 times every day. Isn't that beautiful? 400 times every day. How many times do you think the average adult laughs? 15. Now, I'm not a rocket scientist. I got a 2.0 grade point average my sophomore year. But I'm guessing we're getting less joy and not more of it the older we're getting. But I don't think it was meant to be that way. I mean, I've. I've studied the Bible my entire life and I'm pretty sure Jesus never said the older you get, the more joyless you should become. I'm pretty sure Jesus said these things I have spoken to you that your joy may be full. I'm pretty sure Jesus didn't say in John 10:10, 10, 10, I have come to suck the life out of you and give you death more abundantly. I'm pretty sure he said I have come to give you life and that more abundantly. You know, I don't know what your Bible says, but mine certainly doesn't say, in the presence of the Lord there is fullness of boringness, and at his right hand there are bummers forevermore. My Bible says, in the presence of the Lord there is fullness of joy, and at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And they don't leave you with a hangover the next day. They're really great pleasures. My Bible doesn't say the grumpiness of the Lord is my sorrow. It says the joy of the Lord is my strength. In fact, do you know that we have such a joyful God that he actually, according to Zephaniah 3.17, rejoices over us with singing. That's what the Bible says. God rejoices over us with singing. So when you're singing to God with this beautiful voice and guitar that Pete was demonstrating today, when you're singing to God, God is singing back to you. He's rejoicing over you, he's singing. You are celebrated, you are loved, he cherishes you. He says, you are made of my image, Genesis chapter one. So even when it starts raining outside, which it doesn't very much in this beautiful neck of the woods in California, but even when it's raining and you have SAD, seasonal affective disorder, and you start to get bummed out because it seems dreary and things aren't that happy, when it rains, you can just think, hey, God's singing in the shower, A very big shower for a very big God. Sing it in the shower, man. God is rejoicing over us with singing. That's why the great German reformer Martin Luther, 500 years ago, he said, if there's not laughter in heaven, I don't want to go there. That's what he said. If there's not laughter in heaven, I don't want to go there. Luther, you guys, many of you know about him. He railed against papal authority when it became corrupt in his generation and the selling of indulgences and preached that justification comes through faith and not by works. Luther was also a powerful cartoonist. And I don't know if you know this, but your pastor is also a great artist. I just found this out this morning. But Luther was a cartoonist. He loved humor. And he said, if there's not laughter in heaven, I don't want to go there. But you know what I would say to Martin Luther? I'd say, friend, there is laughter in heaven. Here's how I know. Psalm chapter two, verse four says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. That's what it says about God. Psalm 37, verse 12 through 13 says the same thing. That verse says that the wicked gnash their teeth against the just, but the Lord laughs because he knows their end. In other words, when you're up against the wall and you're going through hard times and and, and the wicked are plotting against you and gnashing their teeth against you, God just laughs from heaven. Why? Because he's so confident you're going to win. He's so confident you're going to get to the other side. He's so confident that all things are going to work together for the good that God's just laughing from heaven. He knows he's betting on a fixed fight. Even if the other team is playing with deflated footballs and you think there's no way that you're going to experience triumph, God laughs from heaven because he knows you have a future and a hope. And that's what my Bible says. My Bible says that God's thoughts toward us are of peace and not of evil to give us a future. and a hope. my Bible says in Psalm 37.4 that if I delight myself in the Lord, he will give me the desires of my heart. The Bible says in Psalm 145 verse 19 that he will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and save them. My Bible says that I should meditate on what's true, noble, lovely, just, pure, virtuous, praiseworthy, and of a good report that I should be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let my request be known to God and the God of peace will give me a peace that surpasses all understanding and this peace will guard my heart and my mind through Christ Jesus. My Bible says that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me so I can learn to be content in all things because neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come neither height nor depth nor any other created thing can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Jesus, my Lord, therefore, I am more than a conqueror because he has overcome the world. So I'm going to go through my life joyful because I know I'm triumphant because if God is for me, who can be against me? (laughs) You picking up what I'm throwing down? This is huge. So if you have your Bible, by way of introduction, that was too long of an introduction, but I'm passionate about this. Would you turn with me to Philippians chapter four? Philippians chapter four, starting in verse four. Paul teaches us all about what it looks like to have joy. I mean, how can we be filled with this kind of joy, this kind of godly laughter? If, if you don't have your Bible, there's ushers who are available to, uh, to hand you one. Philippians chapter four, verse four. This is one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. You know, um, as you're turning there, Paul says in Romans fifteen thirteen. this is my New Testament life verse. Romans fifteen thirteen. Paul says, May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. If people say, Ben, what kind of God do you serve? I say, well, if you want to know what kind of God I worship. According to Romans 15, 13, I worship the God of hope. It's what the Bible calls it. The God of hope. Now the problem with our word for hope in our generation is like, We say hope like it's a Hail Mary football pass. I hope this connects with the wide receiver. You know, young guys might say, I hope Angelina Jolie asks me out on a date. I hope I get this parking spot. I hope I win the lotto, whatever. And the way we use hope is it's like, I don't know, but maybe God will come through for me. But in the Bible, when you see the word hope, it means the absolute expectation that good is coming. It means that you're looking forward to the future saving acts of God based on the salvation that he's already wrought in the past. It's being absolutely confident that good is on its way. So Paul in Philippians 4 verse 4 is able to have hope even when he's in a dungeon writing this letter. Let's take a look at what he says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let me read Philippians 4 4 again. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, our word rejoice in the English comes from a French word, rejoie. The word re or the prefix re in French means rejoice to intensify the force of something. The word joie means to experience joy. So the English word rejoice literally means to intensify the experience of joy. It means to joy like a command verb and then rejoy. So Paul is here saying as a command, joy, joy again i will say rejoy kind of like today when russell wilson drops back for that pass hits his wide receiver gets the touchdown espn's going to put it on instant replay or so that half of you don't hate me tom brady you know he, he hits his wide receiver he gets a touchdown pass it puts that play on instant replay that's what we're supposed to do with joy when we experience joy we're to rejoy we're to put it on instant replay or repeat. That's the idea of our English word, rejoy. So in this one verse, Paul is telling us to joy four times in Philippians 4 4. Joy, rejoy. Again, I will say joy, rejoy. Paul was all about that joy, friends. Now, if you are quick turners, would you turn with me to your left to Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 15? Luke chapter 14. If you're a fast turner, Here's what Jesus had to teach about joy. In this passage, Jesus is likening the kingdom of God to a feast. Now, back in first century Palestine, if you were to use a symbol that would demonstrate and denote and depict the greatest human happiness, you would employ the symbol of a marriage feast. There was no greater parable, allegory, analogy of joy that one could use if he were a rabbi than to demonstrate his teaching or to demonstrate the point in his sermon as a wedding feast. Now, in this passage, Jesus is constantly comparing the kingdom to a feast because the feast is the symbol of greatest human happiness. Have you ever noticed how much Jesus liked to eat? He was all about feasting. You remember after, according to Luke, he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead? What was the first thing he said to Jairus' mom? Get her something to eat. Raising from the dead works up an appetite. In John 21, after Jesus conquered death, according to the apostle John, Jesus went to the lake of Gennesaret, also called the Sea of Tiberias and the Sea of Galilee, which was a lake at a dip in the earth's surface. He, He said to his disciples, launch into the deep and catch fish he caused them to catch 153 fish. He was very hungry. Then he said, bring the fish to shore, and he was already cooking fish by a fire on the shore. In fact, when Jesus asked us to remember him, he didn't say, do this in remembrance of me, fast. Instead, he said, do this in remembrance of me, feast. Now, now it's kind of hard for us to understand what Jesus meant back then, because today we have to do this at my church too. Like when we take communion, we use like a little cracker and juice, which we kind of have to do because you can't feed everybody unless you're good at multiplying lunchables and you can multiply cheese and crackers to feed 5,000 people, if you get my little pun right there. But the point is, is that Jesus back then was celebrating like a feast. It was called Passover. And he took a portion of the Passover and turned it into the Lord's Supper and he said I want you to remember me by feasting in fact Jesus liked to feast so much that one time some religious people came to him and they said Jesus the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees fast but the only fast that your disciples do is fast food they said your disciples feast all the time And Jesus said, I'm a bridegroom. And as long as the bridegroom is here, the groomsmen are not going to fast. They're going to feast. We're here to celebrate. In fact, did you know that Jesus had so much joy demonstrated by these feast analogies that one time he compared himself to a man who plays pipes in the marketplace that children might dance. Now, some people think of like a really gloomy, depressed Jesus Because Isaiah 53 says he was the son of suffering or the man of sorrows. And of course he knew sorrows and he knew suffering. When he was in the garden of Gethsemane, he was sweating great drops of blood, suffering hematrodosis as the capillaries in his face burst. As he said, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus knew what it was like to be the son of suffering. But here's a little secret. Hebrews chapter 12 says that even at the cross, Jesus had joy set before him, knowing that he'd be seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So in Luke chapter 14, Jesus shows us all about this joy and this rejoicing. In fact, in verse one, we see that Jesus is eating bread at the house of a Pharisee. He liked to eat so much, he'd even go to the house of a Pharisee to eat. Then we see in verse 8, he says, whenever you're at a wedding feast, take the lowest seat that you'll be exalted to a higher position, teaching if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. If you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. So again, he talks about a wedding feast. Then in verses 12 and 13, just skimming this chapter, he says, whenever you give a supper, do not invite your friends to Your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors, lest they repay you. Jesus says, invite the poor, the lame, the maimed, the blind, those who cannot repay you, that in the kingdom of heaven you'll be rewarded. In other words, don't give us strings attached. But again, he talks about the kingdom being like a feast. Then check this out. In verse 15, I like this. This man says, as he was sitting at table eating with Jesus, he said, Blessed is he who shall eat bread. In the kingdom of God, now this man speaking would have obviously been a Jewish man, and his idea of the kingdom of God was such that the Jewish people were expecting for a day to come when God would break into history and send his Messiah or his Christ, his anointed one, a king, who's going to set up a great kingdom, and they were expecting a political kingdom, many of the Jews were And the Jews were expecting when this golden age, this new day was ushered in, that God would throw what was called the messianic banquet. They believed God was gonna throw a great feast. And one of the main courses of this feast was Leviathan meat. You know Leviathan, the sea monster. Many of the Jews were expecting that God was gonna basically work the barbecue and cook up Leviathan slabs. So they were looking forward to this great feast. And then Jesus tells this parable to teach that it's not just Jews who are going to enjoy this feast. It's Gentiles, it's outcasts, it's prostitutes, it's tax gatherers, it's lepers, those who are on the fringes of society, those who accept my grace. Anyone is invited, Jesus would say, to enjoy my feast. And in verse 16, he says, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many. Again, implementing the idea of a feast to explain the kingdom. Now, I'm just gonna sum up what Jesus says in the rest of this chapter. He says, a certain man made a great feast and sent his servants to invite people to come. They began to make excuses why they couldn't come to the feast. The first guy said, I can't come because I've got three fields, or I've got fields, pardon me, that I've got to till and take care of. By the way, why did Santa Claus buy three fields so he could hoe, hoe, hoe. Hey, I'm just trying to make you live longer. That's all I'm trying to do. Just trying to improve your immune system. He says, I got fields that I've got to hoe. I like what the second guy says in this story. You can read it later. He says, I can't come to the feast because I've just bought oxen and I have to try them. Now, back in that culture, you wouldn't buy oxen without first trying them any more than you would buy a car without first test driving it. This guy was basically an oxen moron by using this excuse. He says, I I can't come. I like what the third guy says. He says, I can't come because I got a wife. You know, we know who wears the pants in that relationship. He said, I can't come. I've got a wife. And they were making all these excuses. But the fascinating thing is, the king wasn't saying, come to a funeral. He was saying, come to a feast. And they were making excuses why they couldn't come. Come. In the same way, there are always excuses why we can't experience the joy of the kingdom feast. There are always reasons why we can become jaded and cynical and lose our hope. But that's the one advantage I have is being a young person getting to teach. Because as a young person, I can't stroke my Gandalf beard and give you a lot of wisdom. But what I can do is I can say, don't lose that childlike faith and sacred optimism and rejoicing that you had back in the day. Return to your first love. I believe we were meant to go from glory to greater glory, from strength to strength, that as our days are, so shall our strength, so shall our joy be. And can I share with you from my heart for a second? Historically, When Christians lose their joy, they lose their power. In the year AD 360 to 363, there was a Roman emperor named Julian the Apostate. He's called Julian the Apostate because he replaced Christianity with paganism and made paganism the state cult. He only reigned for three years and it was shortly reversed after his death and Christianity was made the state quote unquote religion. But in his time, he eradicated Christianity as the state religion. And one of the reasons why he hated Jesus followers so much was because he said, Christians, the sun shines for them, but they don't see it. He said, Christians are pale faced. One of the reasons he hated Christians so much is because he said they don't have joy. And they're making our empire depressing. And historically, when Christians lose their joy, they begin to lose their power. Now, it's interesting that Julian, as his critique against Christians, would say that they didn't have joy, that the sun shined for them, but they didn't see it, because Jesus calls us the light of the world. That was the greatest compliment he ever gave his followers because he called himself the light of the world. So when he called you the light of the world, that's the biggest compliment ever because he just gave you a compliment that he reserved for himself. And can I tell you this? This is where I want to speak from my heart. When I die, I hope that at my funeral, people say, Ben may have made a lot of mistakes, and he did. But at least he was a lump of sunshine. That would make me so happy. I want to be like a lump of sunshine. That's what Jesus called me to be. He called me to be like a lump of sunshine. You are the light of the world. Do people get that from us when we walk into a room? Because C- it's interesting. A lot of Christians historically, they, they've lost their joy and people don't necessarily want to join their faith. Like you've heard of Oliver Wendell Holmes. He was a US uh, Supreme Court associate justice 100 years ago. He said, I might have entered the ministry, but certain clergymen I knew looked like undertakers. So I decided to become a judge. It's like, they look they look like they work at a funeral, so why would I want to become a pastor? Robert Louis Stevenson of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Treasure Island fame, after he went to church one day, Stevenson wrote in his diary, I have gone to church today and I am not depressed. As though it were a miracle that you could go to church and not be depressed. Swinburne in his hymn to Prospering wrote of Jesus, thou hast conquered, O pale Galilean, the world has grown gray from thy breath. But friends, my Jesus did not come to turn the world gray. He came to turn that which was gray into living color. He came to do a Wizard of Oz on the world. He came to bring the color back to life. And that's why Jesus called us to be not only the light of the world lumps of sunshine but also secondly Matthew 5:13 the salt of the earth now for years i always saw that phrase salt of the earth and i was wondering what does that even mean well here's the thing about salt this is huge salt represents four things primarily number 1 salt represents purity In all of its glistening whiteness, it's a symbol for purity. In fact, uh, back in Jesus' generation, the Roman philosophers said that salt is the purest of all things because it comes from the purest of all things, the sun and the sea. So back then, salt represented purity. Secondly, salt represents a preservative. As you know, back in Jesus' generation, they didn't have refrigerators, So to keep food from going bad, they'd sprinkle it with salt. Because salt was a preservative that would ward off putrefaction. In the same way, we Christians are to be preservatives, warding off putrefaction, acting as the conscience of society, keeping the world from going bad. We want to be a light and a positive influence in the world. But the last two characteristics of salt go perfect with joy. Check this out. Salt also makes people thirsty. Obviously. That's why when you go to the movie theater, they give you a large popcorn and they put a bunch of salt in your popcorn. Because what happens when you're halfway through the movie and you've just eaten a large popcorn with a lot of salt? You have to go to the concession stand and buy their $22.50 drink. So it's a very clever business tactic. Do we make people thirsty for the Lord? Do they say, you just are a delicious Christian that makes me thirsty for God. Psalm 42, you make me thirst for the living water of the living God. Do people do people see me and say, I want the water, John 4, that will cause me to never thirst again. You're so salty that you make me look to Jesus, who's obviously giving you joy, so that I can get water from him that will cause me to never thirst again. You're so salty, you're making me thirsty for God. Do people see that joy in our life? Fourthly, salt represents this is my favorite, flavor. Jesus said if, a, if salt loses its flavor, it's, it's no good except to be tossed on the ground to trample underfoot by men. Do you guys have Red Robin here in Auburn? Do you have Red Robin? Yes? Okay, nearby, cool. If you've ever been to Red Robin and you get their fries, you have to get their seasoning salt. They put it on the table with fries. Oh my goodness, it is like Handel's Messiah going off in your head when you taste their seasoning salt. It's a game changer, friends. It's a party in your taste buds. It's an explosion of savor in your mouth. Now, when I put seasoning salt on those fries, it's like, I can't wait to eat it. Why? Because salt The the primary thing it does is it lends flavor to life. If you look at the ingredients on almost everything you eat, salt is always there. Because food would be pretty much insipid without salt. It would be tasteless or too gamey without salt. So salt lends flavor to things. And it's so ironic to me that sometimes like, the critics of Christianity will say, Christians suck the flavor out of life. It's like Jesus told us to do the opposite, right? He told us to lend flavor to life. I hope people say, you Christians know how to live it up, man. You Christians know how to have joy. And that's why Jesus made religious people very uncomfortable. Religious people killed Jesus. Do you understand that? Prostitutes loved him. Dead serious. Dead serious. Tax gatherers who were the notorious cheats loved him. Lepers loved him. The dregs, quote unquote, of society loved him because he knew how to lend flavor to life and he would offer God's grace and God's love and it would change them. And I believe that's who God has called us to be because in all my studies of history, I've never read one biography or one story of a character who ever changed history through lack of enthusiasm. I've never seen somebody go through life just kinda of bored and joyless and they somehow accidentally change the world. Enthusiasm changes the world. Here's why it's so important that we have this enthusiastic joy in our own lives. I'll tell you, a couple weeks ago, I saw this, this movie called The Hobbit. Maybe some of you saw it in theaters. We're big Lord of the Rings fans. But imagine if I came to you today and I said, you know, I just, I just saw The Hobbit the other day, and I want to tell you it is your grim duty that you go support J.R.R. Tolkien's legacy and go see The Hobbit today. It's your grim duty to pull up your pants, tuck in your shirt, put a grim expression on your face, and brave the movie theater and go see that movie. If you heard that, would you be like, yes, I can't wait to see The Hobbit but imagine if I came to you today and I'm like, guys, I just saw The Hobbit and it's the best five hours you'll ever spend. Because it's a very long movie. You'd say, wow, if I see your enthusiasm, right, I'm going to be inspired to go see it. I, I was telling the young people at camp this yesterday. But in Matthew 5, verse 10 through 12, Jesus said what Paul said in Philippians 4, 4. He said, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. That word for exceedingly glad in the Greek language is agalaiastai, And it means literally to leap exceedingly. So Jesus said that in the context of people who are being persecuted. And he said, even when you're persecuted, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. And did you know that some of the early Christian martyrs, because they could read Greek, they would get burned at the stake. And before they got burned at the stake, they would leap for joy because they were so excited to enter into the kingdom feast right after death. They would literally, physically leap for joy. Agal, I Astai. They were exceedingly glad because they knew the reward was great in heaven. So as I draw to a close, you might say, okay, Ben, obviously joy is a major theme throughout the scriptures. But the question is, how can I have joy when I'm going through hell? If I'm going through persecution or depression or anxiety attacks or marital issues or family problems, how can I have this joy that's not just contingent on my circumstances, but can actually rise above what I'm going through? How can I know that when my circumstance is over my head, God is over my circumstance? How can I know that life is a roller coaster? It has its ups and downs, but it's up to me whether I scream or enjoy the ride. How can I learn to have joy? Well, in my own family, I look at my dad who, who Pastor Greg was talking about earlier. And my dad has went through the ringer and been tortured on the metaphorical rack when he was my age. His wife died in a car accident. And he was left to be a single dad pastoring a church with three kids. A few years later he married my mom and had my sister and Mary and me. And A few years later, when I was eight years old, my sister, Jessica, my dad's oldest daughter, also died in a car accident and went home to be with the Lord. And I've watched the sufferings that my dad's been through and like people in our our immediate family dying. And you would think he'd be the most depressed person you've ever met. But if you've ever heard my dad, it's crazy. He's like the Christian Santa Claus. If you've ever heard him laugh, he just has this deep like ho, ho, ho laugh, you know, I can't do a good deep laugh because when I go through drive-thrus, they say, you got six tacos? Is there anything else you would like, ma'am? I'm like, did you just say ma'am? But my dad has like this really deep, <clears throat> he has this really deep rich laugh. He's got so much joy. Why? Here's why. I'm going to represent this with another story by dad. One time he was flying over um, some treacherous mountains and the winds were kicking up and the, the wings were freezing over and the captain came over the loudspeaker and said, this is your pilot speaking. We have nowhere to land the plane. We're flying over treacherous mountains. The wings are freezing over. We cannot defrost them, and there's a very high likelihood that we're gonna crash. So my dad heard that he might crash, and then right when he heard that the plane might be going down, this was years ago. I don't know if pilots still do this, but my dad proceeded to fall asleep. He just took a nap when he heard that he might crash. Well, years later, my dad, obviously the, the Lord took care of the plane and defrosted the wings and made it safe to the other side. Years later, I asked my dad, if you just heard that you're very likely about to crash, how can you sleep? My dad said, Ben, here's how I could sleep. Because I knew that if I was going down, I was going up. If you're picking up what I'm throwing down. I know that even if I die, I'm going to heaven And besides, I was pretty sure God wanted me to make my speaking engagement anyway, so I was sure we'd be fine. (laughs) But it just reminds me so much of Jesus when he was in a storm, not in the sky, but on the sea, when Jesus was sleeping during a storm and the disciples were like, wake up. And Jesus just gets the kinks out of his back and says, why do you have such little faith? We're gonna get to the other side. You can either get to the other side panicking or sleeping. It's up to you. You can either go on the roller coaster laughing or screaming. It's up to you. My encouragement is you're gonna to get to the other side anyway, so you might as well enjoy where you're at on the way to where you're going. We don't have to be miserable as we go through life. Can, can I just say one more story? Then I'm really gonna close for real. I remember the worst time in my life as an adult was when I was 19 years old. When I was 19 years old, I I thought I loved, I thought I loved this girl, right? This is a girl I dated on and off in high school. I was living in Oregon, she was living in Orange County, and and I was just positive I wanted to marry her. So I tell my dad, I said, Dad, I wanna marry this girl. And so my dad said, Ben, you better be really sure about this if you're gonna drive 12 hours and tell her you're in love with her. I'm like, Dad, I'm positive. So sure enough, I I drive all the way to Southern California. I take her to a Mexican restaurant. And I say, "I, I know I've been a bad boyfriend in high school, but I want to marry you. And she's like, well, did you ask my dad? I said, yeah, I asked your dad. He said no, but I said to him, why you gotta be so rude? I'm gonna marry her anyway. No, I'm just kidding, that part didn't really happen. (laughs) I said, I said, I said, I really love you. I really love you, and I want to be together for the rest of our lives. And as we were sitting there at the Mexican restaurant, I just poured out my heart to her, and I told her I loved her, and this was her reply well, Ben, that's very sweet. But I'm in love with your best friend. And so she went and married my best friend. Now, it sounds kind of silly when you, when you listen to it now, but for a 19-year-old, I was like, my world has ended. I was thinking, I'm going to go be a monk in the woods. I'm done. If I can't marry her, I don't want nothing. So sure enough... For a whole year, I was just devastated, depressed, despair, heartbroken. Like, I had the blinds closed, you know, the hair in my eyes, listening to Death Cab for Cutie, just hating life. Until one night, on a Wednesday night, I walk into church and I see this beautiful blonde bombshell walk into the sanctuary. And I'm like, who is that? I mean, she's like a quarter or an eighth Hispanic, so she's got that Mexican flair going on. She has the bluest eyes you 've ever seen with blonde hair, like this killer combination and i 'm like i got g- i mean i 've been heartbroken for a year, but look at this girl like my my sorrow is evaporating, so I go up to this girl I'm like, i 'm like i've got to think of a really romantic line, so I go up to her and I say, "Will you go with me to taco Bell?" <laughs> Very romantic. I should have said, "Is your name faith because you 're the substance of things hoped for That's what I should have said. I said, will you go with me to Taco Bell? So sure enough, we go to Taco Bell. A few months later, I put a ring on it. Her name's Nisha, we've been married for six years now. But it's crazy because now that I look back, I realize that my mom and Nisha's mom, when me and Nisha were babies, would literally come together, Nisha's mom and my mom, they would come together and pray, Lord, help our kids to marry just the right person. And little did they know, we'd go to marry each other. And then when I, when I was 20 and she was 18, on a Sunday morning, we got married as a surprise like wedding Sunday service, nobody knew we were getting married, because my dad did the same thing 25 years earlier with my mom. My dad showed up Sunday morning, he's like, come to church tonight, it's going to be a very special service, and he shows up to service with a tux, and he marries my mom, it was a surprise to everybody. Some people say, was it a surprise to your mom or did she know? <laughs> no, my dad wasn't just like, I choose you and then married her right then. No, my mom knew they were getting married. So me and Nisha said, this will be awesome. Let's do this same thing. Let's do a surprise wedding on Sunday morning. And we got married. My dad said, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord, the book of Proverbs teaches. He said, let's not just be hearers, let's be doers of the word. So we got married. He baptized some people and me and Nisha went to Hawaii. Now, I look at my wife the greatest gift God has ever given me. God, thank you so much that the very thing that at the time hurt me the most was the very thing you used to take me to my destiny. And some of you, you are knowing the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. You're the ones who are gonna share in his glory Blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. What the enemy means for evil, he will turn for good. So even when you're suffering, you can agal out, I ask thy and say, God is betting on a fixed fight. I am positive that I'm going to get to the other side. I'm positive that all things work together for the good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. These things he spoke to us that our joy may be full. He has given us a joy that no one can take from us. The fruit of the spirit is joy. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, according to Paul. In the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. So I will rejoy in the Lord again. Again, I say, Rejoy, because I serve the God of hope.